We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hello and welcome to Novel Feelings, where two psychologists take a deep dive into your favourite books. I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. And today we have an interview coming up with Elfie Scott. Elfie is a presenter, journalist and author. She started her journalism career at BuzzFeed News as their first science reporter. And her freelance journalism has featured in The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, SBS, Junkie, Pedestrian and Vice. She's also worked as the senior producer and host of the daily video news show, The Junkie Takeaway, and currently working as the editor of Mamma Mia!, you may know her from her previous work as the host of the Spotify exclusive podcast, Left Right Out, or as host of the weekly environmental news podcast, The Green Canary. And today we are talking about her newly released book, The One Thing We've Never Spoken About. The One Thing We've Never Spoken About is an investigation into the failings of Australia's mental health care system, grounded in a personal story of a mother-daughter relationship. Journalist Elfie Scott grew up in a household where her mother's schizophrenia was rarely, if ever, spoken about. They navigated this silence outside the family home too. For many years, this complex mental health condition was treated as an open secret. Elfie came to realize there must be thousands of families who felt silence in the same way, including people who were far more vulnerable. Part memoir, part deep dive investigation, the one thing we've never spoken about is filled with rage at how our nation's public discourse, emergency services, and healthcare systems continue to fail so many people. It is also a work of care, telling the little heard stories of people who live with these conditions and work at the front lines of mental health. And can I just say that this is a topic that is pretty close to our hearts as Mm. people who work within the mental health care system and I guess understand many of the ways that it does fail people living with complex mental health conditions. Yeah, I would say I suppose some of the points that get brought up in this books are not in this book are not shocking necessarily, but still not shocking to us anyway. Yes, not shocking to <laughs> us, but it might be shocking to people who haven't been, you know, involved in the healthcare or the mental health system. But it's still frustrating to see because, you know, the, how is this still continuing? And didn't we have a royal commission <laughs> several years ago? Yep. <laughs> yeah. And for those listeners who might not know as well, you know, I'm doing my PhD at the moment, which is all about stigma and discrimination. Um, so reading this was just really highlighting or underlying some of the points that I've been reading about and immersing myself in for the last couple of years mm-hmm. as I've been undertaking this project. So definitely an area that we feel passionate about. Um, but even, I, I don't know about you, but even as someone who has been, you know, is reasonably familiar with this stuff, there were still new things that came out for me and perspectives that I hadn't necessarily thought about or considered before. Anyway, before we get started on our review, just note, um, as per usual, we're trained psychologists, but this podcast should never be taken as direct therapeutic advice please consult a professional for more specific and tailored advice. 
Also, as a nonfiction book, we're not going to be doing what we normally do, separating this into spoilers versus non-spoilers, um, as it's not really the sort of thing that you can spoil, I suppose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but we will flag that, like all our author interviews, this has been edited slightly for length. And for some content notes, today we are talking about stigma and discrimination in a range of areas with a focus on schizophrenia. We also talk about cultural understandings and responses to mental health. All right. Well, let's get started on our interview with Elfie. Elfie, thank you so much for joining us for this interview today. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this very important and timely book. Uh, not an easy read by any means, but a very important read. And a huge congratulations on the acclaim that, it's, that you've received so far. So for our listeners who haven't yet read the book, could you tell us a little bit about your personal connection to schizophrenia and why you chose to write about this topic? Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much, firstly, for having uh, me on the podcast. I'm not necessarily sure if acclaim is the right word, but that's very, very kind and generous of you, obviously. <laughs> and in terms of my personal connection to schizophrenia, my mum lives with schizophrenia. Uh, so I have always been around it to some extent, really. So we've always had that kind of family connection. It's always been part of our universe. And why did you decide on the title, The One Thing We've Never Spoken About? And did you have any alternative titles in mind? This is such a funny question, actually, because I literally just thought of that title in about four to six minutes. And then I was <laughs> like, that's it. That's the one we're going with. And I, yeah, I never got any negative feedback about it. It was just the one that came to mind immediately and was most natural. And yeah, we just rolled with it. So I never had any alternatives, funnily enough. And uh, of course, such a big theme of stigma throughout the book as well. And um, schizophrenia being something that a lot of us don't talk about, but something mm -hmm. that um, such an, an important experience to your family, but something that was never spoken about at all. Is this something that has been sparking a conversation now, now that the book is published? Yeah, so it was funny. Um, honestly, like the research process even sparked that conversation in my world as well. So like everybody who found out that I was writing the book, you know, I'd be speaking to people at parties or at like events and things like that. And they would say, oh, my uncle has schizophrenia. My brother has schizophrenia. My sister has schizophrenia. So suddenly all of these people, uh, even people who I'd known for years and years, were coming up to me and saying that they too had a personal connection to it. So I felt like the conversation actually started even before the book was published, really. And then the book has been published now, and it's definitely been really uh, enlightening, but also um, kind of disheartening to some extent as well, seeing how many people are coming forward and saying, you know, I've never been able to talk about this publicly. And this has really meant something to me that you're speaking about it. So that's been really nice, obviously, but then just goes to show how many people are out there living with a connection to schizophrenia that they're never able to express. And I do hope that work like this really does start to to push at those boundaries and push at those attitudes that we have around complex mental health conditions too. You know, that when you said that, it just reminded me of uh, a couple of years ago, I was doing some research into borderline personality disorder and treatment experiences in Australia. And that was a similar, I guess, advocacy piece of raising awareness around the lack of services and the stigma within the community and within mental health services themselves as well. And after that was published, I had 
various friends and acquaintances reach out to me and say, hey, I have BPD or mm-hmm. I know someone, you know, my sister has BPD and so on. Thank you so much for this work. And just um, holding holding that is very special in a way, like feeling that, you know, you are not holding a secret but something that's very important to someone that they're not necessarily comfortable talking about or talking about in a public space. Um I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm no, just trying to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I do think that BPD is such an interesting condition for exactly mm. that reason in that it is, uh, as far as I, I know and the research that I've read, it is the most stigmatised disorder amongst a lot of mental health professionals. Mm. Like people who live with it um, experience terrible things when they come into contact with psychiatrists and um, psychiatric clinics. So yeah, that's, it's really interesting. And it's, it's fascinating once you start scratching the surface, just how many people uh, live with these conditions. And yet there is such a strong disparity between how much we hear about it. Um, So yeah, I I totally understand where you're coming from there. So can you tell us about your experience writing the book compared to your normal style of writing as a journalist? Yeah, uh, it was honestly a huge undertaking that like, I don't think I really uh, acknowledged at the time of, you know, saying that I will write this book. It was like a massive commitment that maybe I had underestimated. Uh, But, you know, as a journalist, I think that you kind of get used to writing about like a lot of different topics and they'll often be, you know, 800 word articles and things like that. And I think what was really hard about writing the book actually in retrospect was just the organization of it. Like, I think it felt pretty natural to want to dive into a topic for 90,000 words or however many are in there, but it was just a case of trying to like logistically organize that um, process. And that was probably honestly the hardest thing. Uh, because, you know, for any given article that I've had published online, you know, I'll interview like two or three experts for this. I ended up interviewing, I think it was close to like 90 people and yeah. And then I just had those interviews and that audio and all the transcriptions and it was, yeah, it was just such a, um, a big thing of trying to keep on top of everything and organizing my thoughts around it. Um, so as for whether or not I had a process, probably not. And I will learn for the next one, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of picturing a giant board of like post-it notes everywhere. <laughs> yeah. 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 So actually like imagine that sort of like frantic FBI guy with like all these yeah. connections. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's where I was at. <laughs> What was it like interviewing so many people in that process? It was a really fulfilling experience speaking to that many people and getting to know people as well. Like it wasn't just a process of interviewing a person once and then moving on. Like a lot of the people that I spoke to in the book, I sort of formed relationships with and um, you know, I'm really friendly with a lot of the people who I spoke to, um, especially the people living with first person experience. Um, so it was, it was really nice to be able to, you know, sit there for a year and just like form these relationships over time, gain people's trust. And I really don't like the sort of transactional thing that happens in journalism where, you know, you just like steal a person's story to me, like that always feels a little bit dirty to me. Um, And so being able to actually, you know, talk to people, have an open dialogue with them, continue to like form their story in a way that satisfied them and made them feel good. That was really important to me. So yeah, I I loved, I loved the research. It was, it was really, yeah, fulfilling. 
there's a lot of responsibility in holding someone's lived experience story in an authentic way. And mm. I will say it definitely came across in the book as, oh, an, like, as being yeah, beyond that kind of transactional experience where it's like a sound bite or a, a quote that just is used to illustrate a bigger point that you sometimes get in media stories. So it was definitely a focus on lived experience, which I, yeah, I'm biased by the space that I'm in, which is a very consumer-led organisation. But, yeah, really appreciated that as a reader. Oh, that, that's really nice that that um, showed. That means a lot. And, yeah, I just, like, this is going to sound so sappy, but, like, I, I really can't stress just how generous and lovely everybody was who I spoke to for this book. And I think that's a really interesting part of entering into any sort of mental health space as, like, an outsider is the idea that, uh, you know, the people who work in mental health organisations, the people who are on the front lines, the people with lived experience, a lot of them are just incredibly generous with the information that they hold and they're really, like, conscientious and really sweet and it wasn't it wasn't hard to make friends with a lot of the people who I spoke <laughs> to, honestly, because, yeah, I guess with the things that people go through, the things that people see, like, they just have this really, um, yeah, this really kind of like humane connection with other people that I found very welcoming actually as a journalist. As someone who's currently writing a thesis on stigma associated with complex mental health in Australia, it struck me that your book could be a thesis and that you could have done this as part of a PhD. Like really? The amount of work was oh, gone no. into it. <laughs> <laughs> I could have gotten a PhD. What? <laughs> like, seriously, it's like the same length, the same complexity. There's all of this like qualitative interviewing that's going on. I thought, oh, if you'd done this through a university process, like you, you really – it's a very similar like amount of work that's gone into it. Oh my God, now I'm really angry. <laughs> um, I mean, it's much more interesting to read than a PhD thesis is, but yeah, it's um, just clearly the amount of research and interviewing that's gone into it is uh, yeah, commendable. Wow, that, that's, really, that's really lovely and hugely upsetting to hear. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. That's so funny. Oh no. <laughs> I was just going to say, speaking of lived experience, your mom's lived experience, obviously a, a touchstone, I, I guess we could say, of the book. Um, how did you navigate sharing her story while also maintaining your family's privacy in the writing? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So before I even started writing any sort of proposal for the book, like I asked my family for permission um, because I really like we're really close and I just would have never ever written anything that anybody was uncomfortable with and my mum was incredibly sweet when I first called her up and asked her if I could write the book she was like yes um, I do want to I really want to tell my story and also she said that she wanted to tell it on the basis that it helps other people which um, mm -hmm. was was really meaningful uh, in terms of like trying to protect their privacy I mean my family were pretty open with me um and my mum was extremely open with me so she uh actually handed me a journal that she had written through psychology sessions um a couple of years after she first experienced the onset of psychosis uh so you know there were details in there that I'd never heard before it was an incredibly like intimate document 
And yeah, it just kind of goes to show that she was really willing to share all of the details of her story. But, you know, I think that I, how do I put this? Like my family are quite private people. We're not very emotional people as well. So there's a lot of stuff in there that um, was was a huge step for us, I think, because we never really disclose like our feelings to each other. We're all quite stoic people. Um, so, yeah, I think that it was definitely pushing them a little bit to have some details in there, but everybody agreed that it was important and they're really happy with how it turned out. So that's all that matters to me, really. I don't know if this was ever mentioned in your correspondence with Elise, but I'm Indonesian. So oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that was part the part of your book that sort of appealed to me, reading it from that cultural perspective. But when you talked about how, you know, your family doesn't talk about emotions, and I'm like, yeah, my family doesn't either. And, yeah. You know, if I was in your position, you know, having to talk about my parents, uh, I suppose, psychological experiences, that would be such a brand new experience trying to have those conversations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like so many of my Asian friends, um, you know, have I've spoken to over the years about how funny it is that, uh, you know, you never have touchy-feely conversations. Yeah. You don't really hug your parents. It's just like, <laughs> it's just this, yeah, it's this very interesting cultural divide. Yeah. Uh, has your family read the book yet? Uh, I think everybody has read it. Whether or not my dad has read it is still up for debate. I have no idea, but like, um, yeah, everybody, like my brother and sister and my mom and my other relatives have read it and they really like it. My mom actually was just like really, really kind about it and really happy it was out there. And she said that when she first read it, there was a story that she told me like that evening once she'd finished it, she was like, oh, I was walking through uh, the concourse near a mall that we always go to. And she said that she saw a person who was experiencing homelessness uh, with a sign asking for money. And she said that she walked past them and then she thought to herself, oh, but they might be living with my condition. And then she walked back and gave them a $10 note. And I just thought that was the best encapsulation of exactly what I was trying to do, which is just to get people to have that second thought process. And even, yeah, it was really special that even my mum had that. Yeah, wow. Um, were there any other challenges on around writing this kind of topic that's so close to your heart and so close to your family's heart? Because I imagine it must have been an emotional experience at times to be putting some of this on paper. Did you need to sort of practice self-care while you were writing this, look after yourself in any kind of way? Yeah, uh, there were big parts of it that like brought up a lot. And I think a lot of that was remembering parts of my childhood that I'd kind of forgotten about. Um, so, for example, there were details that my brother reminded me of that I just didn't like I just had put at the back of my mind I guess uh like you know my mum uh you know shouting at voices when she was like uh making food at, uh at night like often she'd be in front of the stovetop like uh telling people to get out of the house and things like that and I totally forgot about that and but then there was also anxieties as well that came up for me because really 
the starting point for the book was the fact that I had anxiety for a very long time that I was going to develop schizophrenia like my mom had. And that was always something that was kind of swirling around for me. It was always the sort of starting point for conversations that I had with other children of parents with complex mental health conditions. And sorry to start diving deeper into the research kind of brought up a lot of that panic for me as well. Um, so I, yeah, I definitely had a, a therapist for most of the research process, um, which was really helpful. And yeah, there, there was a lot to wade through, but ultimately, um, yeah, I feel really happy that I actually did it. And then as well, I have to acknowledge that you know, as much as I may have experienced discomfort, like a lot of the people who I spoke to probably did too um, in sharing their own narratives. So like, it's not just about me and the emotions that I experienced. It would have been huge for people who are named in the book, people who shared their stories as well. So yeah, it was a very big experience. And I, I just hope that it sort of shows and it's, it was worth it basically. Because there are some of the people with lived experience who you speak to who are using their real names and mm. um, have that kind of public face to their stories. But I know that there are a few as well who chose to remain anonymous. I think there was a moment in the book where you mentioned that somebody withdrew, decided to withdraw their name. Mm. Like that. They withdrew their story, actually. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I think that, again, that comes back to, I mean, we, we don't, we don't have to expect everyone to share their stories by mm. any means. Not everyone, it's it's not like that's going to be the ultimate goal here is that every single person shares their story publicly. <laughs> but mm. um, I think that's still speaking to the need for us to have pieces of work like this that are having this platform to share stories and to normalise it so that more people can choose to yes. if they wish to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I thought the most striking part actually about that person choosing to remove their story was that and I know that this might sound sort of blasé but this their story was actually like the most interesting part about it was how low severity their condition was Mm -hmm. um and the way that they lived their lives they were incredibly professional person who you know, was embedded in a very like high profile career. And I guess the most interesting part about that to me is that they very, very rarely experienced symptoms and yet they felt stigma just as much as anybody else. And there's, yeah, there's kind of like an interesting thing to explore there of is stigma directly related to the severity of a condition? And actually, no, it's probably not. Yeah, that is such a good point. And I imagine sometimes when you're not not so obviously symptomatic, that's when you might pick up on the more microaggressive comments as well that mm. people make offhand jokes or comments around, you know, these conditions, not realizing or not thinking that someone might be experiencing that in their life. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's really, yeah, it's so multifaceted, I think. And like, that's probably the most interesting part about like talking about stigma as you would understand obviously at least is that there's just like so many different layers to it um yeah and there's a lot to pick apart really I don't I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate this thought very well because I have not never put this to paper before (laughs) oh um, no please let's I will try (laughs) Um, one of the interesting things I've, I've kind of noticed about the stigma 
advocacy and stigma reduction space is a lot of the time the messaging seems to be, um, you know, I have X condition, but I'm okay. Um, Mm. Look at my life. I'm doing well. I can hold down a job. I've got a decent income. I've got a family and so on. You know, all those stereotypes are not true. Um, Look at myself or you know, look at this person, like look at look at all of us who are who are doing really well. You know, we might have challenges, but we're we're okay. And I do think that that's well and good to kind of challenge some of the ideas. So for example, your mum reading about her story and how the the wonderful person that she comes across and how she's living her life goes against a lot of the stereotypes of schizophrenia. And that's not to say she isn't affected, but you know, maybe not on the more severe spectrum. But I do wonder sometimes if we're leaving some of the people behind with that messaging who might be experiencing, you know, finan- you know, significant financial troubles, who can't hold down a job, who might be experiencing, you know, might be experiencing aggression during periods of psychosis or might be having those experiences which are seen as being immoral or, you know, are still really looked down upon in society, who still need help and still still need resources and everything. And I don't know, I don't know. I just this isn't something that I think your book was doing at all. Because I know you you recognize through the story um, through, through your mum's story and the sharing of narratives as well, that there are, there are levels of privilege within this. Mm. But I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm just not articulating this in a particular way. No, no, no. well, is... Like, who who are we leaving behind when it comes to some of this um, stigma stigma messaging? Not necessarily what's in your book, but some of some of what we see in this space more broadly. Totally, there is a really interesting theory that I read about in passing in an article the other day called like the gentrification of. Uh, destigmatization and it is actually that idea that you know we can accept uh mental health conditions to the extent that those people are still productive members of society still contribute they still have like you know quotation marks normal lives and yet we can't face up to people who are actually living with profound disability as a result of their mental health condition and I think that that yeah, it says something so profound about what we value in this society that we live in that we are unwilling to face up to true vulnerability in other people and support people through that. What is it about us that means that we have to say that, you know, holding down a job is like the biggest you know, value judge of a person. But you're contributing towards capitalism, therefore exactly. you're a valued member of society and so on. Totally, totally. And I think like it was something that I was so patently aware of in the book as well because for a start, the people who are able to speak to me are the people who aren't currently living with extreme uh, or extremely severe um, symptoms of their mental health condition. Like that's just a very basic fact and then you also have to balance on the other side that the way to get people to enter the conversation is through parts of people's lives that are accessible and relatable. So it's like, how do you balance those two things when you're trying to talk about destigmatization? And I mean, I hope that I communicated that the, there is a seriousness about this, that there is there, there are people who are, you know, who are impaired by their mental health condition. Um, but that doesn't mean that they should be treated 
as any lesser or any less deserving of resources, exactly like you say. So, yeah, it, it's a very complicated picture and it's a, it's a matter of trying to balance how much you want people to enter this conversation and how much you're willing to uh, kind of give them the raw facts of mm. being extremely affected by mental health conditions. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very hard to put into words, but yeah. Yeah, it's definitely... Um, <laughs> It's definitely something that I've thought a lot about. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. And the book, of course, doesn't just talk about stigma. It talks about discrimination being the, you know, the very real impact of, of stigma and those negative views that we hold about people. And I guess, you know, coming out of it, I think the book really illuminates all of the different ways that discrimination is embedded into Australia and, and worldwide, mm -hmm. um, all of the different ways. You know, it's not just that we see some negative portrayals on media. It's, you know, this is embedded within our health systems and our legal systems, in our housing system and so on. I'm, I'm wondering if there were any particular areas of, um, you know, the different chapters, the different topics that you were covering where you found, you found things to be um, surprising or particularly illuminating for you. Yeah, I think the um the there are a couple at the end that I think are my favorite chapters in the book because I was the most surprised by what I found in them. Um so yeah, absolutely the housing chapter like you know, I I'm not a mental health professional by any stretch of the imagination and I hadn't heard about things like uh like housing first um theories for rehabilitation um and things like that and I thought that that was really really fascinating and like immediately made sense to me like why are we trying to uh fix and uh, fix people's lives or like support them and yet they don't have a place like they don't have a roof over their heads like that's it seems absurd and then obviously the justice system chapter was really shocking to me uh like I had no idea about the proportion of people who live with symptoms of a mental health condition uh, that end up in the justice system, um, how they're treated, and then ultimately like, uh, you know, how they're turfed out with like little to no care by the justice system as well. So all of that was, yeah, it was really shocking. Oh, as well as like the the deaths that we see of people living with mental health conditions in shootings, which I, I mean, I have very, I mean, maybe I was completely naive to this, but I had no idea that, you know, police even, you know, shoot people who are exhibiting these kind of severe symptoms and like that happens shockingly often. So yeah, there are a lot of different parts that I was really genuinely surprised by and uh yeah it, it was a it was a really big journey learning about all of that yeah it's quite confronting I suppose to read the chapter about justice system because it came into my mind that sometimes when a client's at risk of suicide and we're really concerned about them we call the police to do a welfare check but you know with that factor in mind you know I would probably hesitate 
a bit more to call the police and involve them in that situation in case things do go awry. Um, and it feels like they, you know, the police shouldn't be responsible for that aspect of checking in on people. Yeah, like it's it's such an imperfect system. Um, and not that I'm necessarily advocating that anybody behaves a certain way or, you know, uh, restrains themselves from calling the police. Like I think we have limited options um, mm. as members of the public to do what we can to keep people safe and, like, that's just an unfortunate fact. Um, but, you know, even as I was writing the book, uh, I had an, an acquaintance go through something particularly traumatic where they uh, were at risk of suicide and the police were called and six police officers turned up to their house to, uh, you know, confront the situation. But it's like, why do you need that many people at all? How is that helping the situation? It seems like a dramatic escalation of something that could have been dealt with, like, in a much calmer way. So, yeah, they're they're really complex questions to ask. And, again, I'm I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't rely on the police because, like, often police do respond in a way that is uh, informed and it's Mm trauma-informed and they're educated about mental health. But, you know, it's a gamble, absolutely. I read somewhere where there's this program where they have a social worker go out with the police to those situations, but I can't even remember now where in Australia or if that's even in Australia. This is the thing. Yeah. That's what I found. Like I kept finding programs exactly like that. Um, where, you know, social worker would be sent out, ambulance would be called instead, um, Mm -hmm. all of these various uh, things that were being instituted in, like, very selective jurisdictions and then they were never actually rolled out, like, statewide or Australia-wide. They were just, like, these tiny little experiments. Um, And it's exactly like you're saying, like, as I was writing the book, I'd be like, I did remember somebody saying that the police have to call an ambulance, but I can't remember where and I can't remember when and, like, does it still exist? The system's so embedded as it is, like it's just all these little things that if they're going to have any change, it's incremental and mm-hmm. it's not going to be as dramatic as we'd like to see unless we have big, big reform happening at one time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we've sort of touched on before is that you approach the book writing from an intersectional perspective, given that your mom is Indonesian and you know you talk a bit about her cultural experience, I suppose, and how that intersects with her mental health experience. And you also mentioned that the schizophrenia efficacy space is very wide. So how do you comment on that? Or how do you approach the cultural perspective of your writing? Yeah, it is It is really, yeah, it's really obvious um, once you start speaking to mental health advocates, um, exactly like, how few people who belong to like ethnic and cultural minorities feel, you know, confident standing up and saying that they go through those experiences. And uh, I did a, I did a quite a bit of reading about like cross cultural stigma and the ways that stigma kind of manifests in different cultures, like especially in East Asian cultures. Um, I was reading about that quite a lot. Um, yeah, I my only thought around this really is that I am very I'm, I'm frustrated that I couldn't have had more diverse voices in the book. Like there are certainly some, but there's not nearly as many as I personally would have wanted to have. And my only thoughts around it really are that 
you just have to break through the stigma in order to let more people who live with less privilege uh, share their voices as well. And it's my book is really a sort of starting point in my mind. Like it's nowhere near where it should be or where this conversation should be. And yeah, I only hope that there is more diversity of voice and that people do feel like they can stand up and tell their stories in the future. And I do think the book, there, there is definitely diversity of experience that comes through, but yeah, you're right. Like it is, it is one piece as well. It can't be expected to represent everybody's experiences. And again, hopefully it's just going to continue sparking these conversations. Hopefully. Yeah. That's what we want. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I would love to, I would love to read more about, uh, you know, the experience of living with a mental health condition in a culture that stigmatizes people for different reasons as well, because, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about uh, capitalism and productivity as being a very big basis for our stigma of mental health conditions. But, you know, in different cultures, it can be, uh, it can manifest as, you know, uh, you're not a family member, like you, you're not uh, contributing as a family member if you have a mental health condition. It's, it's very different and it can vary quite a lot. So I would love to read those kind of first person narratives in the future. I do like the section of your book where you mentioned that your mom actually does have a good experience and good support from her friends who are of that Indonesian background. Because mm-hmm. I suppose reading your book, I was like, oh, well, what would this look like in Indonesia or at least in my part of Indonesia and I guess all my experience has been that schizophrenia is just not even named sometimes or Mm. because understanding of mental health is so basic at the moment it all sort of gets lumped as weird or you know quote-unquote crazy and no Mm. one really offers support or talk about it very much but so it's good to see you know a different perspective on how a religious or cultural background can actually be more um, help someone be more supportive I suppose of someone with a complex mental health experience yeah yeah I am like I do think there's an interesting divide there obviously because of my aunt's experience because she stayed in Jakarta and you know she never received the psychiatric help that she needed and you know it it was interesting when the book was being edited, uh, I got a note from somebody about when I talked about how, you know, my mum's friends are Muslim. And so Mm -hmm. I do think that there is something about like that shared Islamic belief system that maybe makes them more open-minded to certain aspects of like mysticism and things like that. And also in Indonesian culture, you know, ghosts and spirituality Mm -hmm. are very much built into that. Um, when I was a kid, I remember my mum always used to say that if you walk past a tree, like there's a dead person's soul in that. So you have to like say hi right. to trees. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I got a note saying that that was like potentially offensive um, because it, of the implication that people who had these kind of religious beliefs believed in magic. And I just, I like, I... I do think that like, yeah, there's something there, but then I also think like my, yeah, my mom has always had this really open attitude towards like ghosts and spirituality and so have her friends. So I do think that like part of the reason that they have continued to accept her and accept the way that her mind works sometimes 
is because of that kind of, uh, would I call it paranormal, possibly, like that sort of paranormal belief system that allows them to have like a kind of expanded idea about, you know, human experience, basically. Interesting. You know, speaking of, I guess, cultural perspectives on schizophrenia, there was a gentleman who I spoke to as part of a podcast that I'm working on at the moment. Another one. <laughs> this is the one that's as linked with my research, my PhD. That's too um, many podcasts. Too many. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so tired, Elfie. I know. I, I'm not surprised. This is shocking. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, one of the gentlemen I spoke to, he's of Greek and Egyptian background, and he's he was diagnosed with schizophrenia I think, 30 or 40 years ago, and he spoke about how for him his cultural um, the the connection to his culture and his community was actually a real strength for him when it came to his lived experience because for him and his his family and his broader community, it's seen as everybody's problem, um, mm. like a responsibility of everybody to help and to support and for the, the community to rally around him. So it's not just that individual experience of um, schizophrenia and you know, hearing voices and so on. It's it's seen as everybody's responsibility. So for him, he had that lovely experience, which we don't always hear about of the community mm. really banding together in support. So yeah, just a perspective well, that I hadn't hadn't heard a lot of before. I've heard a lot of the community rejecting people with mm. schizophrenia. So it's nice to hear that the opposite happens sometimes. Yeah, totally. And I think like that's another part of how we have to reckon with stigma uh, in Australia as well, right, is like the idea that we're all highly individualistic and like that's what our society is built on. And so, yeah, the failure of one person is seen as, you know, their problem, their faults, you know, their struggles are seen as something that other people can just kind of push to the side and not deal with. And actually, so I tried to look into First Nations communities uh, a bit for the book as well. And I know that there are varied experiences, but the the person that I spoke to for uh, the book was a person who was living in Queensland and he sent me a letter uh, detailing his experience. And it was very much what you're talking about as well, which is the idea that like the community picks you up, they gather around you, they they don't judge you. Um, they just, it's just a very natural uh, willingness to support people who are vulnerable. Um, and that might not be true for every First Nations community, obviously, but that was true for his experience as well. And I thought that that was really Profound, especially when he spoke about the way that white Australia uh, looks at mental health conditions and the way that it's stigmatized. I thought that was really interesting. It would be easy to read this book and feel demoralized about the degree of stigma and discrimination that people face. Are there any positives that you see happening in this space? Look, I think that our willingness to talk more and more about mental health conditions is opening up the possibility that this conversation will happen. It's just not happening right now. So um, obviously, you know, I start from that place in the book where I'm talking about like uh, depression and anxiety and ADHD and how we've seen increasing campaigns of destigmatization around those conditions happening um, on social media and places like that. And I, I do think that on the one hand, that is you know, upsetting because it means that it's leaving all these people out of the conversation. But I think that the mere fact that it's happening also means that there has to be some sort of logical progression in the way that we're thinking about mental health. And I, yeah, I see it as a distinct possibility that complex mental health conditions will start to enter the conversation in a 
bigger way. You know, I think I've even seen it recently uh, with uh, bipolar disorder, particularly. So, you know, I went to a comedy show the other week and a woman was talking about her experience with bipolar and uh, the funny things that she did when she takes antipsychotics and the tics that she had. And she was recalling it in this really like, really funny way that was bringing the whole audience in and like making them understand her experience. And yeah, to me, I thought that that was like a really fascinating moment where, you know, a group of like 2000 people were laughing with somebody about their complex mental health condition. I think that's only going to improve and the conversation is only going to get more nuanced. Um, So it's just a matter of us educating each other, educating ourselves and talking about it really. And uh, if someone was in the same situation as you, so supporting a family member with schizophrenia at a you know, young age, what would you tell them? Um, I would tell them that they, well, firstly, I think that they would be interested to hear about how many people were living with the same experience. Um, I, I think that it can feel extremely isolating having a family member who lives with a complex mental health condition because we're still not talking about it but they have to know that there are so many other people out there and maybe even peers in their same cohort who have the same experience and so yeah there are stories out there that they just have to be found and then the second thing I would say is that there are a hundred percent resources When I was in my early 20s, I had this really frustrating experience where I went to a psychologist and I asked, um, you know, are there any support groups for people, for family members of people living with uh, schizophrenia or other complex mental health conditions? And my psychologist at the time said, no, um, they don't exist. And I can tell you very confidently now that they actually do. There are lots of uh, support networks for carers and family members, and all you have to do is look. Um, They will be in your city. They'll be running uh, counselling sessions. They'll be running group um, sessions during the week. I haven't personally been to one yet, but I do know that they happen like 10 minutes away from my house every night on a Thursday. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot out there for you. You just have to look and always just, yeah, just know that the resources are there when you need them. Great. And that brings us to the question that we ask all of our interviewees. Do you have any authors, books, or other media that you would like to recommend to our listeners that might cover similar themes? The book that I really, really loved reading um, while I was doing my research was a book called The Collected Schizophrenias by Esme Wujin West. Um, she is an amazing writer and it's an incredible collection of essays, especially for people with lived experience. I'm sure that there's a lot in there that you would find really, uh, really exciting to see put to paper in such like a poetic and gorgeous way. Um, and then there is another book that I would recommend basically to everybody, Tell Me I'm Here by Anne Deverson, which I feel like is the kind of text that everybody has to read about schizophrenia in Australia. It was written by the incredible broadcaster Anne Deverson, who was a journalist for a long time for the ABC, and she wrote about her son's very profound and very sad journey with schizophrenia but I think that it really gives insight into what it's like to care for somebody who lives with a condition that is that severe um but did you see the play no I didn't see the play but I was talking to Marg Leggett who was a big friend of Ann Deverson's and she helped write it so she was telling me a little bit about it but I would have loved to yeah I've 
I wanted to go and see it, but it just didn't work out. And I have read the book though, and it is brutal, but it is very good to read. It is. It's just very insightful. Yeah. Brutal is definitely the word, but you know, the, the way that she writes is so, so moving. And, you know, I cried so many times reading it. And I I just think it's such a special book that is absolutely worth reading for everybody. Well, I think that actually wraps up our questions. So thank you so much for joining us, Alfie. Um, Great conversation. Always good to hear a bit more about what went into making the book as well as uh, some of the key messages and themes that are in the book. So Listeners, do go out and check it out if you haven't already. Thank you so much for having me. Now we will quickly mention what is going up on the blog post on our website to link in with this episode. Some of the resources that we will link to include links to Alfie's website and social media, her podcasts, some information about schizophrenia, and information about some of the work being undertaken to reduce stigma and discrimination in Australia. That wraps us up for today. Thank you once again for listening and a big thank you to Elfie Scott for joining us for this interview. If you like us, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on novelfeelings.com or on Instagram, Twitter, The Storygraph and Goodreads via novel underscore feelings. You can also find my bookstagram at paved with books with an extra s bringing it back to life it's being resuscitated yay (laughs) all right thank you everybody for listening take care see you next episode see ya